a great privilege to, uh, whenever we get to have Bill and Becky back, it's not very often because they live and minister in Japan where they have been for 30 years. And they have been our dear friends for longer than that. And we praise God for this couple and their faithfulness and the travail that they have faced over many, many years uh, to plant churches and are still laboring to plant churches in Japan. It's a wonderful, wonderful ministry there. And uh, Bill's not only a great friend uh, and a faithful missionary with his wife, Becky, and his children are also in Japan. They now have their own ministries. Uh, Bill's also an excellent expositor. Bill, would you come bring the word? came from Japan. What did you expect? I got a bow, you know. Good morning. You realize you have been ministering in Japan for many, many years every Sunday. Uh, you have an outreach to Japan as well, and thank you very much for helping us to extend your ministry to Japan for all these years. My name is Bill Petit. My wife Becky is here. Last time we were back on furlough was 2013. It was interesting as we were singing the song. There were two new songs here that I'd never sung, and I looked at when they were written. While we were gone, what would you expect, right? Uh, the, uh, Maggie and Jason and uh, I don't know the guy playing piano, but he's good. I love the cajon guy, the pianist. You guys are terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting us be a part. I am going to give a little plug someday if you want to send anybody you want, but if you want to send Pastor Dan and Chris to Japan, we'd love to have them. We'll use them up. We'll have them teach counseling and preach and do all sorts of stuff and not let them come back. So uh, <laughs> I don't know which part of that little... Uh, uh, advertisement is going to uh, meet your soul, but you're welcome to send them, and we'd love to have them, and we hope we'll see them in Japan. We'll call it an extended uh, honeymoon or something like that, which you guys could use. Thank you once again. We're glad to be here. If you could take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. You have a rather expanded outline, thanks to Nina, wherever she is. Thank you, lady. But, uh, you know, thank you. That was good. Oh, okay, well, whoever it was, I'm thankful. Anyway, in your uh, bulletin. But uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, I'm going to read it and then pray. This is immediately after the events of what is normally known as the feeding of the 5,000. And here goes. Immediately, one of the key words of Mark, really, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the, wa on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Father, thank you that through Jesus Christ we can come before you. Lord, start with me and change us today through your word. We love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you lived in America, you would get the impression, often, that our Lord Jesus Christ was primarily our great cheerleader, standing on the side and calling out, give me a B, give me an I, give me an L, give me an L. That's my name, by the way. I should have used Dan. That would have been shorter, right? And there is some truth to that. Christ does encourage. He does comfort. But often a half-truth is worse than a lie because our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just comfort us and encourage us. He rebukes us. He loves us enough to lead us to repentance. And he often uses trials in our lives to change us and to make us more fit for and desirous of heaven and more like Jesus Christ himself. And this is one of those times when you read the New Testament, and especially the, the uh, Fukuin show, the Gospels, thank you. I still struggle sometimes going back and forth from Japanese. Apologies. Yeah. When you read the Gospels, you sometimes get the impression that a lot of what Jesus was doing, and it's very true, was disciple-making. He was preparing his disciples to go out and continue his ministry. That's why Luke, when he wrote Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says, this is all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. We're continuing it today, aren't we? So a big part of his job was to train the disciples and prepare the disciples. And one of the tools that Jesus often used was trials. This story, Jesus is doubling down on a lesson he was trying to teach them through the feeding of the 5,000 just a few hours before. He wanted them to learn compassion. He wanted them to learn faith in the Lord's glorious might, and they had not learned it. And Jesus used a notable trial to teach it to them. This trial is repeated again in Matthew and John as well, and they give slightly different slants. But I love this story from Mark. Before we talk about what happened here, and I, when I teach homiletics, in Japan, I always tell people, don't do this. Stay with the run passage, you know. Don't jump all over the place if you can help it. But I'm going to jump a little, so forgive me. We're going to go to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, a famous passage. Take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Many of you might already have memorized this passage. It's deservedly very well known. I'm going to read it again. And here it goes. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren. So who is he talking to? Christians, right? When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This passage teaches us at least six things about trials the things the Lord brings into our lives? First, trials are unavoidable. It doesn't say if you fall into trials. It says when you fall into trials. If you haven't fallen into trials, just wait. You will. Secondly, 
they come in various sizes and shapes. It says various trials. Sometimes what may be a trial to you might not be to me and vice versa, but various type of trials. Thirdly, they're all most often unexpected. It says when you fall, very few of us fall on purpose. When you fall into trials. Fourthly, your response to trials is your responsibility. It says count it joy. That's, that's your job. And fifthly, it doesn't say it will be joy. You're going to enjoy this, guys. It doesn't say that. It says consider it or count it joy. But the last one is where we're going to talk about today because it ties in with the passage we're reading in Mark chapter 6 so much. Whether trials teach us something or make us grow in Christ depends on our response. Notice verse 4, it says, let endurance have its perfect work. You have something you have to do. Trials just don't change you automatically. Actually, there's a sense where every trial comes with a temptation. It's interesting, in the Greek, the word trial and temptation are exactly the same word. The way we distinguish is usually by context and by the teaching of the church fathers, but exactly the same word. But every trial does come with a temptation. And that is to have meet this trial and let it become totally worthless in our life by, for example, uh, running away, giving up, worrying. I have done all these. Run away, giving up, worrying, get angry at someone doubting the Lord. Or we can fall into self-pity and depression. And when we do these things, that trial just becomes absolutely worthless to us. We might as well just throw it in the scupper because it is valueless to us. When we do those things, God's trial in our life, that he gave it to us as a gift to make us more like Christ, that we might become perfect and mature, it becomes valueless to us. And we're going to meet some disciples who need to learn this as well, as we need to learn it as well. Here's what happens in the church. Somebody comes in the church. We have a hard time with them. They're oil and we're water. As a result, they sit over here, we sit over there. And we think, ah, this difficult person in the church, if they weren't her, this would be a great church. Maybe I better leave this place. Let's go somewhere else. Right? I've had people come to me in Japan say, if you could just get rid of him. Kind of like kick him out, ask him to leave. This would be a great place if he left. And you know what I tell him, and this is what I really believe. Praise the Lord for that, brother. That is God's greatest gift for you in this church. You will never learn what God wants to teach you until you love that brother, until you love that sister. Let's look back at Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. Let's see how the Lord used trials and life as disciples to teach them compassion and faith in his glorious might. Number one, and all this is so detailed in your outline, and I appreciate it. The trials we meet are part of the Lord's plan to disciple us. Notice verse 45, it says immediately, this is Mark chapter 6, verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. It doesn't say the disciples were all eager to get in the boat. It says Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. To know what happened early in the morning, they had come down the shore rowing, 
to get to this desert place. They had already spent time in a boat that day. They'd done their boat time, man. And when they arrived, there were thousands of people waiting for them. Remember that? And Jesus looked out on all these people and felt compassion on them and said, you know, let's get them something to eat. And you remember the story. Jesus took fishes and loaves and divided them and and the 12 disciples fed at least 5,000 men and who knows how many other women and children. Did you ever feed 20 people, 30 people, 50 people? It's a lot of work feeding all those people. They're going, passing out the food and rocking down the rows and was all done. They had to gather it all up, right? Ended up with 12 baskets. They gather all this food. It's been a long day. They're with people. Are you a people person? I'm a little bit, but you know, all day of people, I'm done. I don't know about you, but, you know, some of these guys were definitely probably toward that spectrum, you know. And, and they're, they're getting worn out. And then Jesus says, you know, get back in the boat, man. Go over to the other side there. They're sort of in the, the south, slightly to the south and to the, the west. And go up toward the northeast place there. Head up there. We're all across, it's, getting later, it's getting later, you know. And I'm sure if you were the disciple, you'd say to Jesus, you'd say, man, we've had a big day. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm not going to come with you. You just head up to Bethsaida. I'll meet you there. Say, what's this about? We don't want to go to Bethsaida. Can't we go tomorrow morning? Wouldn't that make sense to you? We have had a big day. We came here to rest. There's been no rest whatsoever. Let's, take a, let's, let's rest, man. We'll head off to Bethsaida tomorrow. And Jesus said, nope. You get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. And I'll take care of the crowd, okay? And off they go. If you've ever been to Israel, which I have not, sadly enough, but my daughter was there working on her master's, living on kibbutz. Galilee isn't that really that big. And we'll find that they were rowing for hours. By the time we see them again, they're in the middle lake somewhere, and it's uh, between 3 a.m. in the morning. They had been rowing for hours, right? Why were they there in the midst of this trial? Jesus sent them there. Wouldn't we like to think that that's not what Jesus does? That the trials we meet in our life are somehow just by chance are of course undeserved. I have a toolbox. Tim Allen has nothing on me. (laughs) We've built buildings in Japan. I got this one toolbox, you know, and this is your main tools. You know, you have lots of tools, but you have like one toolbox when somebody says, let's go, and you grab the toolbox and go. At the bottom of the toolbox are all these bigger tools that I don't use that much, but there's this little tray on the top, a little handle. Most, most of you guys have one of these, right? You pull out the tray at the handle, it has the stuff you use all the time. And it's got some pencils in it and a little pair of pliers and a utility knife and measuring tape and all this stuff is up that you use all the time, right? God has a toolbox, what he's using to make us. The Lord has a toolbox that he's using to make us more like Christ, make us perfect and mature, lacking nothing. And right up at the top there, you know, he grabs all the time or trials. Here it is. He goes again. Troubles will come. And why were they there? The Lord sent them. There are some things you can't learn from a book. You can't learn at seminary. You can't learn at seminars. None of those things. You can only learn them through personal trials day by day. I always think fit missionaries and pastors almost have to fail before they can succeed. We don't come just turned out perfect. God's working in our life. The Lord is working through our lives. 
That's why, really, just graduating from seminary, this is, this is just a personal opinion. I'm, gonna, you know, I'm old enough now I can give little opinions. Sometimes people think, oh, they go to American seminary. Then they can just go to some other country and teach everybody in that country how to start churches and be successful pastors. Right? I'm not so sure. I always tell people, if you want to do that, first go start a church. Go, go through those dark, dark times. And then start teaching, okay? I really, I really feel that way. There's the danger of thinking that, man, we can bypass this. None of us can bypass this. This is part of the Lord's work in our life. First, the trials we meet are part of the Lord's plan to disciple us, to make us more like Christ. Secondly, only as we persevere in the midst of trials will we learn what the Lord wants to teach us. By the time we see them again, Jesus walking on the lake, it says it's in the fourth watch, that's between three and six in the morning. They have been rowing for hours. Now, let's say it was you or me. When they went on this little rowing expedition, I assume it was at least late evening because Jesus was about to send the crowd away, right? It wasn't like midnight. They had to give them time to go home. So they had been out there for six hours, eight hours, rowing away. And the wind was against them. The waves were against them. And they weren't making progress. If you were out on this fairly small lake, rolling away for all these hours, what would you do? Now, if you were me, I'd turn back. I'd say, surely the Lord didn't understand that this isn't the way it was going to work, right? I just turned the little robot around, and I'd add back for sure. We can take another shot at tomorrow. I mean, I mean, we tried. We did our best. We hung in there for all these hours, but we're getting tired. It's time to head back to shore. We'll sh- take a shot tomorrow. The wind will change. We'll be better, right? Isn't that what you would do? If they had done that, what would they have learned from this experience? Nothing. Nothing. Look at the miracles in the Bible. When Peter, soon after he started following Christ, met him on the shore, and Jesus said, throw out your net on the other side. He had fished all night, right? It would be so easy for them to for Peter to look at him and say, man, I've been fishing all night. I know about fishing. We haven't caught anything. No. What would he have learned? Nothing. Nothing. There's the same thing for us. If we give up, if we run, if we quit, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of the things the Lord brings in our life, we will not learn the lesson he wants to teach us. We will not see his glory. We will not learn about his magnificent power. First, the trials we meet are part of the Lord's plan to disciple us. Secondly, only as we persevere in the midst of trials will we learn what the Lord wants to teach us. And thirdly, in the midst of our trials, actually the Lord knows and he cares. Look at verse 46. After bidding them farewell, they're off rowing across the lake, Jesus went up in the mountain to pray. Actually, every time in the Gospels that I've found that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray, either by context or very clearly. He was paying for the disciples. Here's what happened. These 12 men were going to be his representatives, his primary representatives. After after he died and went back to heaven, they were crucial to the whole plan. They had lessons they had to learn. This was not an optional thing. This was not an elective. They had to pass this course. He had just taught it through the speed of the 5,000. It didn't get anywhere. They still had to learn it. He was going to, they got to learn this thing. 
And he went up the mountain. He was saying, Lord, they're out in this boat. God the Father, they're still out in this boat. Help them to learn this lesson. They've got to learn this. This is crucial. They will never be able to fulfill your goal for them and your kingdom unless, unless they learn this lesson. He was praying for them, I'm quite sure. And then right at the exact time, he headed out to them. When we're in the midst of trials, Jesus knows and cares. He really does. He does. And fourthly, and this is, this is why this is a missionary message, okay? Jesus had at least two things he wanted the disciples to learn. And actually, we can learn these two things from absolutely every trial we meet. The first is compassion, and the second is Jesus, or the Lord's, magnificent power. Look with me to verse 52 again, once again. It says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. What we find out is Jesus is re-repeating the lessons he wanted them to learn just a little bit ago. And the first one, and that we need to learn as well, that he needed them to learn desperately was compassionate. Compassion. You really can't understand this passage until you understand what happened just a short time before. Look at verse 47 through 48. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the lake, in the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Did that make you pause? They're out there rowing in the midst of the sea. Can you see him? And you would think, this is what you would think. Jesus would come rowing up, running up the boat and said, man, you have been so faithful to the task. Hang in there. If you will just continue and keep at it, you will get to the other side. Amen. In fact, give me an oar. Peter, let me massage your back a little. You just continue on. What did Jesus do? He goes walking by him. Can you see him? They're, they're straining. You know, they, they were so out of it. They thought they saw a ghost, right? Often when we're in the midst of trials, look for Jesus, he's there. They weren't looking for Jesus. They didn't even expect him to show up, right? They saw this figure out there walking on the water. They're like, oh man, it's a ghost. They were terrified. How silly. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? And I think in the context, it's very, very clear. Turn with me to back just a little bit to Mark chapter 6. We're still in Mark chapter 6, okay? Mark chapter 6. And we're going to start at verse 34 and just read a few verses. Here it goes. When Jesus went ashore, this is all the same day, really, on the same next day, the day before, part of the same passage. He saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it was already quite late. His disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. What is Jesus saying to the disciples? What, is the type, what are the disciples saying to Jesus? I'm sorry. Send them away. This was nice, man, but it's been a long day. 
Send them away. Jesus looked at these same people and he had compassion. He saw their needs, both physical and spiritual. He felt tremendous compassion on those people. And the disciples looked at exactly the same group of people and he saw them as, they saw them as a bother, a distraction from their planned rest. Going to mess up their vacation, man. Through this whole story, Jesus was trying to teach the disciples compassion. Compassion. And they didn't learn it. So he's going to switch the tables on them. In this story, the really needy people were all these people out there, hungry, without a shepherd. Now we're going to switch the story, right? The real needy people are these 12 disciples in the boat. They've been rowing for hours. They were spiritually and physically worn out in the middle of a dark lake at night. How does it feel to be ignored when you're physically and spiritually just worn out and, and you need, you have a great need, and all of a sudden the Lord just comes by you like, you're not even there, man. Why did he do that? And I think the, the, the context is very clear. He wanted them to feel how much it hurts when you're just in the midst of a needy situation and you're just passed by. One of the desperate things each of us needs to learn is compassion. I don't know how it's really hard as a missionary, as, as if you're a Christian who loves the Lord, you go, you go to a mall, have you ever gone to a mall? You think, man, there's more people here in this mall than the church on Sunday morning wandering all around me. How many of these people, if they were to die today, would go to hell for all eternity? It's just hard to look at them. You know, makes it even less fun to go to Disney World or someplace like that, right? Man, look at all these lost people. What are we going to do with these people? You know, compassion is one of the great driving forces of giving. Compassion is one of the great driving forces of evangelism, of going. The Lord wants us to be people of compassion. It's so easy to look at the people around us and say, man, they're bothered. They're lowering our property values. They don't fit in. And Jesus looked at these same people in a great, 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 great compassion. One of the things we can always learn from every trial is compassion for something, can't we? Years ago, I uh, donated a kidney to my brother. Remember the next morning, my like, the hospital was like an hour from where we were staying at the time. And uh, I got up early in the morning. You know, they get you out of bed like almost immediately, right? So they trot me over the bathroom, sit me on this little stool. The nurse disappears. I'm about... Four feet from a little thing you pull when you're desperate. Well, I couldn't get there, man. I just hugged onto that sink, had this scar this big on my side, you know, and and, uh, and and I just sat there for about an hour going, help, help. Nobody heard me, of course. Finally, finally, somebody came. You know, I've always had a lot, never had a, been in the hospital before that. Are you in that same boat? You know, you never really in the hospital. All of a sudden, you had a big surgery, and all of a sudden, you feel more compassion for people in the hospital. Isn't that right? People get cancer, and all of a sudden, they have a lot more compassion for people with cancer. Every trial can teach us compassion. But Jesus wants to be, us to be people of compassion, deep, deep compassion. People around us are not bothers. They're not those people. 
They're people with great needs. And secondly, secondly, faith in the Lord's glorious might. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? They, they hauled out the food there and they said, well, we got these few fish and these little bit of bread here, and what good is that? Got a little bit of money, but what good is that? Nobody piped up and said, you know, we can't, but you can. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. They need to learn it once more. The key to them to getting across the lake was never their own rowing skill. Whatever part of your life you're in, the only way you get across the lake is through the Lord's power. Through the Lord's power. Colossians 1.11 puts it this way. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and all patience with joy. It's only through his power that we can endure, that we can have patience, that we can have joy. It's sort of interesting. John, it says, he got in the boat and immediately they were on the shore. They didn't need any more lessons in rowing. All that was pointless. They needed the power of God. Isaiah 7, 9 says, if you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. We never have any hope whatsoever in our own schemes and efforts. We're always thinking, boy, if we could have this method or do it this way or whatever it may be. Peter was still learning that to the time Jesus was put on the cross, wasn't he? Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane chopping off servants' ears. He still thought, maybe, maybe I can add something to the whole program, man. When he had desperately needed to learn that it's the power of the Lord's glorious might that saves, changes, helps, provides. And there's no missions, there's no evangelism, there's no growth without learning that the Lord's glorious might is the key to everything. Absolutely everything. That's why the Lord's words at the end of the Great Commission, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth, are just so crucial. That day when they were in the boat there, the reality was not everything they could see. Because Jesus appeared. They thought they were seeing a ghost. But in the midst of my trials and yours, Jesus cares. He has a purpose. And in his purpose, we're safe, and he's there with us every time, right? He said three things that everybody who's a missionary or a person, a Christian, a disciple, needs to learn. Famous little words here in verse 50. For they saw him, were terrified, and immediately spoke with them. He said three things. Take courage. Uh, some people translate this, don't quit. Hang in there. Don't give up and turn back. Secondly, it is I. Uh, one of those famous phrases in the New Testament is ego me, which is the uh, I am statements of John. Almighty creator God is I. I'm here, man. And lastly, don't be afraid. Actually, the, the original would be stop being afraid. They were afraid. They were terrified. But don't be afraid. In the midst of whatever it is the Lord brings in your life, remember those three things. Don't quit. The Lord's there. He's with you. Creator of heaven and earth, he's with you. And don't quit. You know, we, we live in a, an age with foolish heroes. You watch any TV or movies, you always have the, the, the hero guy goes up to the girl, looks at her and says, man, I love you, and I'm coming back. 
I will not leave you. You'll be okay. I will save you. And you know what we do inside ourselves? It seems sort of romantic, but we laugh, don't we? Because no guy can make that promise. They don't have a chance. Car could run over them the next minute. There always is somebody bigger, stronger, and tougher. There's no way you can make that promise. The only person who can say, don't quit, it's I, don't be afraid, is Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to wrap it all up together. First, the Lord's going to use trials in your life, bring them into your life, and he wants to teach you compassion. He wants to teach you his glorious might and more. But in every case, those things. And we're always tempted. There's always that temptation to run away, give up, quit, fall into worry and self-pity, give into anger and doubt. But in exchange, remember that the Lord's plan for my life is always best. The Lord is with me and cares deeply for me. In the midst of his trials, I'm faithful in following him. I will see his glory, learn more of him, and grow to be more like him. It's interesting. Yeah, we, we're in an area of the country in Japan where you just don't see churches. I, I had a pastor visit us a few years ago, and we drove all over the place. And towards the end, I said, have you ever seen a church? And he said, no. And I said, well, I'd have to take you somewhere to show you a church. Often you can drive around areas in America, and you'll go past church and then drive a little farther. There's another church, and then there's another church. Uh, where we were in Ohio recently, we went past the church and it said, come as you are. That's what it said on front of the church. And I thought, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that, isn't it? Zacchaeus, you rotten, dirty scoundrel. By all means, come as you are. But the message of the gospel has never been come as you are. It has never been, uh, you know, you can say come as you are, but it's always don't stay as you are, Right? Don't stay as you are because God never intends us to stay as we are. The Lord never intends us to stay as we are. He's constantly working our life to change us and make us different. Start with me, Lord. And he always wants us to learn compassion and faith in his glorious might by which we can never be, without which we can never be what he wants us to be. Let's learn that. You're going to learn that lesson today and this week and every day for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you very much for your word. Continue to work in my life and everyone here to make us more desirous of heaven, more like Christ, more compassionate. We'll have more faith in your glorious might. Change us. Rule in our lives and use us for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.